discuss tactics for strategic Christian living. Mighty Lord, extend your kingdom, be the truth with triumph crown. Let the lands that sit in darkness hear the glorious gospel sound. Good evening and welcome to the War Room. This is Bill Evans. I'm in the home of Joel and Laurie McDermott. Joel, welcome to the War Room. Why, thank you, Bill. Glad to be here at my own home. <laughs> so, you know, recently, the thing that comes to mind first and foremost is recently the the, the, the much to do about nothing and uh, regarding um, allegations that you had renounced, uh, recanted uh, on your view of... of um, the application of God's law to all of life, which I, I, without even having finished your book, I just, I couldn't see that. So, in Bojadar, in, in his um, interview, we talked a little bit about what you meant by the term general equity, and because everybody who reads the Westminster Confession is familiar with the phrase, mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm guessing your perception is that they're misunderstanding it. Uh, maybe I'm incorrect. If, if you want to talk with that about that, and and uh, also um, give us a teaser so people will buy the book and and find out about the first table of the law and the and civil government's relationship to it. Okay. Well, that's about three questions all in one question. So okay. The first one is: Have I abandoned theonomy? And I, I don't see how. I've heard a few people say that. The vast majority of people who have read my book have not come to that conclusion. Uh, some of those are from the old guard, theonomists, and say, you know, you made some revisions here and there, but actually I agree with you. I've had a couple say, I've got a couple questions for you, but you've really made me think. Um, I've heard a few people here and there say, you know, this is different than Bonson. Um, but as I actually quote in the book, uh, it's not necessarily that much different from Bonson, and I'll I'll talk about that in a second. Uh, it's only been a couple of people from particular factions who have a, a vested interest in denying my view, who have made this claim. So, uh, what I haven't seen yet is any of them prove it. So I've some had some people say, "Well, Joel's abandoned theonomy, coming out of, for example, the Covenanter class." Um, although my book has caused uh, discussion among them to some degree. It's not like they sit around and talk about Joel McDermott all day, don't be wrong. But uh, there was one guy who came out and said, well, I'm not using the term theonomy anymore. And someone said, well, I don't want to use it either, but don't let McDermott have it. <laughs> so, um, you know, there's that perspective. Well, the, the Covenanters and the people following that kind of very strict adherence to the Westminster Confession from a particular tradition's point of view, uh, they have a particular angle on all that stuff. And for a long time they might have cited Rush Dooney or they might have cited Bonson as quasi uh, fellow soldiers, but at the end of the day they would have denied several principles here and there. And 
it turns out at the end of the day, the reason they really hung on was because their views seemed to uphold the old view of enforcing the first table of the law through the civil government, which is in Westminster Confession, not 19, but 23. And that was the chapter that was later taken out. That view, I, that the rigid way that view is taught in the Westminster Confession, I trace in the book as coming from the heritage of Constantine and the Roman Catholic influence, rather than a strictly biblical theonomy. And I, I, I show this very clearly from, through footnotes and through the transmission of the tradition through history, even through the Reformation, even through some of the divines, even through some of the very well-known ones like Samuel Rutherford. Uh, the other group are the people who really wanted to see me lose the old debate and when I came out with what was perceived to be a change in theonomic interpretation some of them pounced on that and say oh Joel McDermott's capitulated and well I just invite any of them to do the exegesis the, the only couple attempts I've seen to make the case rely on the straw man vi uh, version of theonomy that we want to enforce the Old Testament law across the board, uh, the ex exhaustive detail without any qualification or any of the things Bonson talked about at length or all the rest of the guys talked about for thousands of pages, and, and say, well, that's theonomy, and the moment you make a revision to it, it's not theonomy anymore, and so Joel's departed from the system. Well, that's just absolutely ridiculous, and I think some of the people making that argument, and it's just a couple, uh, know they're not being honest and have a reputation for not being honest. So I, I don't care what they say. doesn't mean anything to me or my ministry or anybody who reads me. Is it possible that the, you were talking about earlier about uh, going back to Constantine, is it possible that it could, have been hark it could have harkened back to the legacy of Cromwell? Uh, what is that in particular? The, uh, the role of civil government enforcing the first table of the law. I, I'm not an expert on Cromwell, but I have seen He's a very interesting case because he did enforce a lot of the first table laws, but he was opposed to a strict adherence to the judicial laws of Moses. He opposed many of the Puritans who did want that. So he was one of these mixed bags. And that gets back to the second question you asked about general equity. What does this mean? Well, a few years ago, uh, a very industrious scholar, I believe his last name is Van Dixer, put out a thorough edition of the Westminster Minutes. Okay, it's like five volumes, very large volumes, very expensive set. In fact, the only library around here that's even got one is Covenant. I had to drive 90 minutes up to Covenant College to, to read this. And I spent the whole morning just going through every reference in this book about the law. And while the minutes oftentimes record these lengthy debates over justification or the Sabbath or whatever else, when it comes to their argument over the judicial laws, they say, well, today the, the, we've debated over the judicial laws. And that's the only information you get. <laughs> so you're left speculating as to who believed what. Well, there was actually a wonderful article. I have it in there on my shelf. I can see right through the window. I forget the name of the, the publication. It's one of the Presbyterian journals. I think it's out of Texas. And a gentleman in there did a history of all of the publications of Westminster Divines on that issue during the time that they were debating this issue. And so what you see is you get a cross-section of important Westminster Divines. Oh, I'd say probably between 12 and 15 of them. Uh, some of them important, like Gillespie. Some like Rutherford. Others' uh, names escape me at the moment. And you get 
very detailed sections of their views of what laws applied. Did the moral law apply only and the ceremonial and judicial completely fall away? Did the moral law and the, and the judicial apply fully? Or was there some kind of intermediate view? What you find is that there were all kinds of views among the Westminster divines and particular covenanters. Some of them, like I said, wanted to get rid of the judicial laws altogether. Some of them wanted it as a package. Some of the guys anticipate Bonson's arguments to the letter. Some of them quote Matthew 5:17 and say, not a jot or tittle shall pass. Some of them use the argument Bonson used where he says, uh, if it's not explicitly rescinded in the New Testament, it continues. You can find all of these arguments through that cross-section of guys. But at the end of the day, they're all different. Okay, and that's just 12 or 15 guys out of the what was there, 120 or so? Uh, there were Covenanters there. There were semi-Anglican, quasi-Anglicans there. There were Presbyterian, English Presbyterians there, the Scottish Presbyterians there. There were dissenters there, and they were all the dissenters didn't want any of the Law of Moses. And they argued. At the end of the day, they came up with a section 19, chapter 19, section 4, that they could all agree on, so that every position in the room could fit under the umbrella of this thing. And so it's really. It was written to be vague on purpose, so that any of them could read it and interpret it in their own way. Now, there, was un there was unanimity, though, that the law was important, with yes. the exception of maybe the dissenters, you said. Yeah, and what you had, well, I think the dissenters even would have said the moral law continues, the Ten Commandments in some spiritual way. And, of course, they weren't necessarily a monolithic view either. What you had was, uh, at the end of the day, was the argument was really over the judicials. Did they apply or not? Some said yes, some said no, and said, said, some said some of them do. And that's where the phrase general equity comes into play. It had a theological pedigree already going back to William Perkins, who, who taught many of the Westminster divines, and even before him. And this is why it's important uh, that uh, it was about that time that I had published a book by Johannes Piscator called Disputations on the Judicial Laws of Moses. And he was second to third generation Reformation. This book was published in 1602, I believe. Uh, don't quote me on that, but it's close. And he says the judicial laws are partially universal application and partially application only to Israel. And the parts of the judicials, like uh, perhaps the, the ritual of the stoning of the daughter, the virgin daughter who's found not to be a virgin on her wedding night. She's taken to her father's doorstep and if, she, if it turns out she's not a virgin, they stone her to death. You know, laws like that have these particular applications to the land of Israel and their sacrificial system. He did was he said the laws that, within the judicial laws that pertained only to Israel, he, he says have equity that is particular only to Israel. And so he called that particular equity. And he said, but nevertheless, there were judicial laws in there, such as restitution for theft, uh, such as the lex talionis, which is the, the punishment should fit the crime principle, and many others uh, that apply to everyone. What's confusing for the, for the garden variety Bible reader is that oftentimes these laws are intermixed with one another. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So the, can you give the listeners... <laughs> Perhaps a, a, a few hermeneutical tips, 
clues are signposts that help the reader maybe know which color highlighter <laughs> to use on that verse. Well, maybe we just need to publish one of those color-coded Bibles <laughs> so we can see that. Um, well, let me, let me finish the, this full discussion here, um, and then I'll answer that. The, the laws Piscator said that applied universally, within the Old Testament judicial laws, he called, they have equity that is general to all people. So that's general equity. So the divide, from Piscator at least, forward, and Perkins is picking up on this about the same time, the divide is not between equity and no equity, which is how it's always interpreted. It's between those laws that have general equity and those that have particular equity. Now, what happens is when they write that language into the Westminster Confession, the only phrase that makes it in is general equity. Well, they all knew what that meant. But here we are, three or 400 years later, we have to go dig through some deep history books to find out what the pedigree is that, of that theological terminology is. And uh, so today, almost universally, completely abstract from all this knowledge of these writings and theology of those guys, it is generally assumed that when it says general equity, it says, okay, well, here's a law that claims there has to be restitution for theft, double restitution. Well, th that was for Israel, but there's some kind of spiritual principle in there that we should extract from it. So maybe, maybe theft should be punished in general. That was Calvin's view. Calvin literally says in the Institutes, it doesn't matter how it's punished. Any nation can decide to punish it however they want to. As long as it's punished, it meets the goals. And, and I disagree with that. And but that's the way it's universally, almost, almost universally interpreted today because it's divorced from the language that, that, that went behind the Westminster Confession. So how do we know which ones are which? That's difficult. That requires exegesis and study and consideration. And just as we're divorced from the theological terminology of the Westminster Confession, we're even further divorced from the theological system of the Old Testament Jews. Okay. We don't... I, I mean, I've listened to all kinds of people, Orthodox rabbis, um, liberal rabbis, um, people like James Jordan, who I strongly disagree with on many issues, but who has these tremendous insights on other things that are phenomenal and they've been lost almost forever in church history. And I listen to some of these guys and I'm like, well, that really makes a lot of sense. And it makes you realize we don't really understand the law to begin with. A good example of that, just on the surface of it, is the stoning of the rebellious son. If you bring up God's law, almost universally, that's the retort that's thrown back at you. Oh, so you mean we start stoning little children who talk back to their parents? And I know that's not what God meant. <laughs> I mean, it, have you actually sat down and read the law and tried to consider what it says to come up with an idea of what that actually means? And when you do, there's a tremendous, profound theology behind that that actually extends into the New Testament. I mean, in, in, it says one thing in Exodus, it expands on it in Deuteronomy. The, the parents have to bring the child to the magistrates, right? The elders of the city. And what do they say? Our child won't listen to us. First of all, it's a son. It specifies a son, not a child, not a daughter, mm -hmm. a son. And it says he won't listen to us. He's stubborn and rebellious. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Okay. Now, I forget who it was exactly that pointed this out to me. It may have been Jordan. 
who said, what happens when the Pharisees confront Jesus early in the New Testament? They confront him over some minor offense. And he says, you know, John came neither eating nor drinking, and you say he's got a devil. The Son of Man comes eating and drinking, and what did they say? He's, drunk he's a wine glutton beer. and a drunkard. And it suddenly becomes clear that there's biblical theology in this that talk, you know, Jesus says, if you believe Moses, you believe me because he wrote of me. Everything Moses wrote is about Christ ultimately. And so there's biblical theology in this that Christ was given, wrongly, given the punishment of the rebellious son by the elders of Israel. Okay, So and there's a lot of that kind of stuff in scripture that if you don't have a really seasoned, detailed, mature view of it, you don't understand the law to begin with. Perhaps the second most popular straw man is the woman taken in adultery brought to Christ. Now, some would say, well, we'll rule that out of hand because it's not in the earliest manuscripts. Okay. But given that we're going to go with it, how would you... How would you uh, uh, how would you uh, rate this explanation? Uh, Christ obviously knew whether or not she was guilty of adultery. He knew she was a sinner because he told her to go and sin no more. But if she was taken in adultery, the, there was no man presented for execution. And, and so Christ, acting as the judge, declared a mistrial and threw it out of court. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's how I've answered it. But what would, how would you answer it? Well, I've always held basically to that view. Although, again, not to keep invoking the man's name, uh, James Jordan pointed out that when this case comes to Christ, he's sitting in the temple. And he treats this case not in his capacity as, as a judge. Remember, he tells people earlier at this point in his ministry, I'm not here to judge between you. I'm not here to bring judgment. Okay. He's doing it in his role as a high priest. That was a different capacity in the Old Testament law. If a woman was suspected of adultery, she was to be brought by the whole, to the high priest, and they had this ritual of the bitter water, where he had to mix the dirt of the ground with water and have her drink it. Now, there are a lot of details in that story that don't line up with all that, but it is a very uh, provocative thought to me that here the, the priest is supposed to grab the dust from the ground, mix it with the water. What does Jesus do in that? He gets down on the ground, he starts writing the dirt. Okay, and it's almost like he's beginning to go through the ritual of the high priest, but since he's the high priest there, who's got the power to forgive sins, and they know this because he's performed miracles, uh, he 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 uses that capacity, and and says, "Is there anybody here who hasn't committed sin? Let him cast the first stones." And so there's a little bit of the traditional interpretation I think may be right there. Um, he can he has the authority to put a king's X on any death penalty. And he does it. You know why? You know how I know? Because you and I are sitting here still alive. Right. Okay? <laughs> Our sins uh, in the throne room of God before we were saved merited death, and he could have struck us down justly at any time. Um, so I, I'm not going to pretend I have a, a fully complete understanding of that passage. I do think he threw it out of court, ultimately, because whatever he did made everyone walk away for whatever reason. And when they were gone, he said, where are your accusers? No witnesses, no crime. So ultimately, he throws it out of court. But there's a lot more, again, biblical theolo theology to consider in that passage. I don't know that we fully understand the law, which is why in my book, when I talk about the Karen principle, and this was the third question you asked, 
first table offenses do they apply today? Does it civil government? I think the penalty it has never changed. The penalty for those sins is still death. God transferred jurisdiction from earthly civil governments to the throne room of heaven. That's my explanation of the book. And that is, there's a lot of biblical theology. Every one of those carom penalties had a stoning death with it. If you've read the book, you probably caught up on that section. Um, that wasn't the case on all death penalties in the, in the Old Testament. Sometimes it just said, they shall be put to death. Sometimes it says, put to death by the sword. Sometimes it says, by fire. Sometimes it just says, driven away. That too. They shall be uh, put away or something of that nature. Um, but sometimes it says, they shall die the death. Well, what does that mean? How do we kill them? Um, so, And you can see even the people at the time that had this revelation struggled with these ideas. And let me just add this right on quickly. Is the classic, another one of the hard cases, the, the man caught collecting sticks on the Sabbath. Well, if you just read the law that they had just been given, it would have been a no-brainer. Well, yeah, he broke the Sabbath. It's a death penalty. But they don't do it. They're confused. They're like, what do we do with this guy? And even Moses doesn't have an answer. Moses goes and inquires of God. They put the guy in ward overnight, and they go and inquire of God, and God says, yes, give him the death penalty. So there's that glimpse of that the ultimate word has to come from the throne room of heaven for, the, for these first table death penalties. And... I believe, as I talk about in the book, that what was done with the stoning penalties and the first table penalties and some of the sexual offenses, all was stoning in the Old Testament. The same language is transferred to in the book of Hebrews to the throne room of heaven. And that is now God's judgment to make in history. And this is why some of the people of the Covenanter side and the older Presbyterians, a few of the old guard people are like, aren't you changing what we've always taught about theonomy? And I'm saying, first of all, Rush Dooney, Bonson, and to a lesser extent even North, were never overtly clear on some of these passages. Some of them they were, some of them they weren't. And even Bonson said, there's much work to be done here. I quote it in the book. There's, there's much uh, room for interpretation here for even revising. So when I go along and do that, and it's still consistent with the fact that God's law applies and the, the civil government today is obligated to keep what's in its jurisdiction. No, that's theonomy down the line. And it, if, if someone wants to argue, no, the first table death penalties have to be there or else it's not quote-unquote theonomy, then it seems to me you're arguing that the death penalties are the sine qua non of theonomy. They are not just a... Uh, a sufficient condition. They're a necessary condition for it to be theonomy. That was never the case in any of the old, other writers. And in fact, uh, I should have brought this out here with me for this occasion. I have a printout of Rush Dooney on Deuteronomy 13. And he gives a fairly general overview of it. And at the very end of one of those chapters, it's in the second volume of the Institutes, he says, so what are we to do today? People ask, are we to start putting to death pagans and non-believing or non-Christians? And his answer to that is, that question presupposes either malice or stupidity. Because the type of society that it would take to institute God's laws to begin with is going to be a Christian society. And when we get to that point, it's going to be a moot question, essentially. So why don't we concentrate on what we can 
answer and imply instead of wrangling over these questions. Two ancillary questions before we change topics. Uh, do you make anything of the assertion or the opinion that in some of the penalties for uh, violations of the law, they represent the maximum penalty and that cases for leniency can still be found within the code? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to relight the cigar here. Uh, I have heard that view. In fact, I just, I think Phil Kaiser brought that up when I, when I was, with, with, was with him recently, and we didn't elaborate on it. I have not seen a full defense of that view. What I do see are cases, what, what Gary North describes in Victims' Rights. The standard for the imposition of a penalty in many cases is up to the victim. Uh, for example, if you are the victim of theft and the guy thieving from you owes double restitution, you can forgive that. <laughs> There's, there's nothing in the world that says you have to exact from him that penalty, especially if the guy comes back and says, I'm, I'm repentant, and he repents, and he's, he's clearly repentant. It was a stupid thing he did. The, the victim may choose to say, I forgive you. I don't want to press charges. I think that's a viable option. And the case where I know that's absolutely the case is with Joseph and Mary because Mary shows up pregnant, and she would have been the ultimate case for that virgin who shows up not to be a virgin on her wedding night. If, if Joseph wanted to press the details of the law, he would have took her to her father's doorstep, had the ritual, and she would have been stoned to death. And this, of course, not knowing that the angel you know, had visited her and all that and, and before the angel came to him. And the text literally says in Matthew, I believe it's Matthew, being a just man he decided to put her away privately. So he was going to divorce her. He was going to bring an ecclesiastical sanction, but he was not going to impose the civil sanctions. And that was the victim's choice. So, yes, I see in some cases it is a penalty that does not have to be imposed. There was another one somewhat related to that is I've heard a charge brought that that this or that person's problem with theonomy or the... Uh, uh, imposition of the the penalties basically um, did away with any. It basically ignored the you know redemption, the idea that a person uh, uh, you know that instead of calling them to repent, mm -hmm. you, you you kill them. And yet I seem to remember a case of both and where was it Aiken or someone where. It was David or, jo or, jo or Joshua says, "My son, give glory to God and 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 tell us what you've done." And then he and he he yes. confesses it. Yeah. And then they kill him. Yeah. Achan. There's just a little short section on Achan in the book because what he did violated the Karim principle, violated that holy boundary, and you know when the law stated that that uh, Jericho should be destroyed completely, and you are not to take any of the spoil. He violated that boundary, which is a, a holy boundary of God's judging fire and judgment upon the nation. And he took some of that. That's why when, he's, when he comes up, uh, he, yes, he is asked to confess, and he does. Maybe he repented. But the, the penalty still falls on him. And you notice the penalty was stoning to death. It, um, it wasn't by the sword or anything else. So it's a clear 
indication there that there was a Karen principle involved, as all the Canaanite tribes had the curse upon them. So, yeah, and it is both and. It, we have the same, we, we do it now. Even if full due process is met out for a guy who merits the death penalty, a murderer. You know, they bring a, a minister, or in some cases a Catholic, depending on what they are, to pray with them, to give them that last chance of confession. Uh, I think where this comes into play a lot is in the sexual offender in 1 Corinthians 5. Paul has him kicked out of the church for the destruction of the flesh. And I'm not 100% sure what that means. I don't know that anyone else is either that I've read. But a lot of people have this idea that he's the guy that shows up then in 2 Corinthians where Paul's telling them to receive the brother who's offended with forgiveness. And for some reason, commentators link these two cases and say this is the guy. I haven't seen any evidence in the text that that's the case. Sure, it's a possibility, but you're talking about a church in which there are hundreds of people in a town in which there are probably a million people. I mean, come on, give me a break. Just to assume that's the same guy that he's welcoming back after he committed this uh, mortal sin and was excommunicated for it is just pure speculation in my book. There's no textual evidence whatsoever that that's the case. Do you enjoy doing debates? Uh, do they take a certain kind of a preparation? Mm. Uh, or do you just prefer to, to just speak on a topic that you're saying? It depends on what it is. And uh, I'm, I'm really flexible and organic, like you said earlier, uh, on these things. Uh, um, debate that I did on eschatology a while back with Don Preston you know, that was not something I would have chosen to do. It just kind of happened, it fell into it. The, the debate with Hall was kind of the same way. Uh, in retrospect, I wouldn't do it. But God used it in such a powerful way. I mean, there are a tremendous number of people following us on Facebook today who said, I became a theonomist because of that, or that solidified my... So, I mean, those kind of things um, I don't mind doing when I'm confident of a position. Or at least confident the other guy's wrong. <laughs> uh, I don't mind doing it because I know that God can use those things. I mean, I've been preaching. I preached through the books of First and Second Samuel, and now I'm preaching through the book of Acts. And what I see over and over again is God call people to just go somewhere with no details of what he intends to happen at all. And when they go, it's this progressive thing that happens. I just preached on it, uh, what is today, Monday? preached on it yesterday at Christ Church Branch Cove in Alabama on Acts uh, uh, 13, I believe it is, where Paul and Barnabas are separated away for the work that God's called them to do. And the Holy Spirit says, just separate them to go do the work. It doesn't say what it is. There's no details. It doesn't tell them where to go. It doesn't tell them what they're going to be doing, anything. But they separate them. Now, that's not to say that they didn't know or that the I elders didn't had, know. I mean, that's just, well, that's we, we don't know if they did or not. I mean, it's just an abbreviated, inspired abbreviated report. It doesn't tell report. us. And I think maybe Paul and Barnabas had a vague notion but when they get to the island of Cyprus, they don't go directly to the Gentiles and start preaching. They go to the synagogues. Well, let me just finish this real quick. The first, the next thing you know, they're invited to the, the house of the proconsul to speak. And they can, they're confronted by Elymas the magician. God calls down judgment on him. And the highest governing official in Cyprus is converted. Okay, They didn't know that was going to happen. But being faithful in those small steps, God opened the next door. The next thing, they're in another synagogue, and the rulers of the synagogue recognize them as visitors, and of course they're dressed like rabbis, and Barnabas was a Levite, so he says, 
gentlemen, would you like to stand up and exhort the congregation? Of course, it's the biggest mistake of his life, right? That's something you'll never see in an ch- uh, American <laughs> no, church. never. <laughs> so they stand up, and Paul preaches the gospel to them and says all these prophecies, Isaiah, the Psalms, and everything, they're fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And all of the God-fearing Gentiles in that synagogue start following Paul, and they say, please come back next week and tell us again. They go invite all their friends, and the next day the entire city shows up to the synagogue. Do you think Paul and Barnabas had any of this? All they did was keep taking these little steps. And so when a door opens to me somewhere, whether it's a debate or a talk at a small venue, it doesn't matter how small the venue is or how big it is, I'll, I'll often go do it just because I know you never know what God's planning that you could never have conceived. And God has more often than not brought blessings out of those things. Yeah, I mean, it, obviously one of the key operative principles of a debate is that you're not debating for the purpose of converting mm-hmm. your opponent, but yeah. of reaching a possible Bonson or a Spurgeon in the audience. You never Exactly. And, and it's why when you said, does this take a certain type of preparation? Absolutely it does. Um, a debate in itself takes a certain type of preparation, but it... You know, if that if a theonomy debate like that happened, uh, like Bonson did one with the dispensationalist at the Evangelical Theological Society, that would take an entirely different preparation, in my opinion, than like what I did in Tempe, where I knew the vast majority of the audience were Reformed Baptists, not Presbyterian. And so I found a way to reach into Reformed Baptist history and rhetoric, and even popular Reformed Baptists when MacArthur went on, and and put this message out there in a way that they understood, hey, we're already theonomists and we didn't know it. You know, So that preparation is always audience specific. It's always topic specific. Uh, and I always try to meld those two to some, uh, my best of my ability and see what God does with it. I think um, possibly for most people who self-identify as Christian Reconstructionists, there's five tenets. I think Bonson would have said there's six. Do there need to be more? No. Uh, and, of course, if you go all the way back to Rushdie, he, he had a much more broad view of it. Um, in fact, he believed, well, we talked about this on the phone the other day, uh, that there were people out there doing the work of Christian Reconstructionists who had weren't even Calvinists, didn't have any idea of the lingo or the theology, but they're doing the work of Christian Reconstruction because they're involved in applying God's law to every area of life, meeting ministerial needs. Salvation Army was a great example. Russ Juni was very high on the Salvation Army, and he, he would have thought, these people are Christian Reconstructionists, even though they don't espouse our, some of our, most of our theological uh, distinctives. So that's kind of the way I view it. I, I, the, the labels I use, but I don't care. Well, let's talk about labels for a second, because I was listening to, um, I just visited with uh, the folks at Covenant Media the other day who are the custodians for Bonson's library. And yes. And they gave me, they were gracious enough to give me some gifts, and I was listening to one that was labeled The User-Friendly Guide to Christian Reconstruction. <laughs> and uh, listening to Greg Bonson address a group of Brit- British, and he never uses any of the labels whatsoever. Yeah. And it and in listening to how he laid made the case, or sets forth the the, the various tenets, they're irrefutable to any sincere Christian. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But as soon as you put a label on them, they become heresy. Yeah, yeah. And so what, my question, what do you, you know, I know that uh, Jason, who uh, 
started the Ministry of Reconstructionist Radio with the audiobooks. Uh, I think he is sort of the impression that yes, the in, in the past and over the, the, the 30 years or more that Christian Reconstruction has been a, a, an identified uh, a body, body of, of body of thought yeah. that the that that the labels have picked up baggage, and I, he would say, "Well, we need to re- we need to recover them. We need to take every thought captive, and we need to recover yeah. those labels, and uh, and and knock off the barnacles and polish them back up, yeah. and and parade them proudly." And others like a a, a uh, Tim Yarborough or a George Grant for. For instance, eschew the labels. What are your What are your feelings on the labels? Well, they can be good or bad, just like you discussed. I'm I'm more of the Jason Sanchez. That's who you're talking about, right? right. Jason Sanchez. I'm more of that mentality, uh, really across the board with everything, even general Christianity. Because uh, again, audience specific. If I'm talking to a group of college students or secularists and atheists, you say Christianity, they think crusades, witch hunts. You know, okay, so there's always baggage, no matter who you are. Um, and even if, if, and if the Reformation knew half of its own baggage with the systematic murder of Anabaptists and whatnot, you know, it's got us. And, and the Arminians constantly throw that when you talk about Calvin. To bring up Calvin, Servetus comes up every time. It's a straw man. It's, it's a, or it's at least baggage that we need to discuss. Um, Christian Reconstruction is the same way. Theonomy is the same way. There's a broad sense, and there's an sense in which it's become a an epithet that can have all different types of baggage on it. Federal vision's the same way, by the way. I don't want to distract this conversation with that, but that's the same way. Um, Rush Dooney, if if my memory serves, was the one that came up with the concept of Christian Reconstruction, uh, just because from the magazine title. Right. Yeah, true. Yeah, that's right. The Journal of Christian Reconstruction. And, and, initially, and, and initially, it was like the word Puritans. Yeah. It was an epithet put on them by their enemies. Exactly. And that's the next point I was going to go to. So oftentimes, the labels that different groups bear were created by their enemies. That was true of Luther and the Lutherans. You know, For a long time, all reformers were called Lutherans. The Roman Catholic opponents referred to Calvin and all of his fathers as these Lutheran schismatics, you know, uh, because they were following in the footsteps of Luther and breaking from the mother, so-called mother church. Uh, so that's the way those labels often work, and it becomes a matter, in reality, a battle of definition. It's exactly how we started out this discussion. You know, uh, people say, you've left theonomy. Well, if by theonomy you mean the... Uh, Old Testament law applies in every detail with no qualification or discontinuity whatsoever, then no, I'm not a theonomist. By the way, none of us are, okay? Uh, but if by theonomy you mean by what we define it as, it's a whole different story. And that's always been the case. And actually there's a, there's a fallacy when you study informal fallacies. There's a fallacy called if by whiskey, the if by whiskey fallacy that comes out of the old prohibition era. Uh, you know, it's the politician who says, what's your position on whiskey, you know? And he's like, well, if by whiskey you mean that thing that ruins households and causes all these drunks and destroys families and whatnot, I'm opposed to it, you know? But if by whiskey you're talking about this product that's derived from corn, which enriches all of our farmers and sustains so much of our economy, I'm 100% for it, you know? So uh, it depends on the definition and the perspective. 
Theonomy is the same way. Christian reconstruction is the same way. The Reformed faith is the same way. Christianity is the same way. Uh, it just, I think that's it, a tactical. I think that's a tactic that we that we need. We'll we'll check that. I'll put that in the in the in the program notes. That before you debate, whether online or in person, uh, have your opponent provide a glossary of terms. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In fact, just today. Uh, yeah, it was today. I put up that article responding to Kevin DeYoung. Now, whatever he may or may not have been trying to say, one thing he was doing in his article was saying the church as opposed to this, the church as opposed to that. He never stops to define church. And the underlying assumption is always the church as the establishment of which he is a part. Uh, this all-millennial, non-reconstruction, two kingdoms view, uh, dominated by the establishment, churches you come to the four walls on sunday we have a service i preach a sermon you say thank you and go home that's church. that's the church then the rest of the time you're out there plotting the rest of your life and if anybody says we need to be engaged in social issues or justice or anything like that uh throughout the article it was this implication you're not the church that's not the church that's not that's outside the church in some cases there was a very strong implication you weren't saved if you were thinking the church should be involved in it. Well, what is the church? I'll give you a second example, again, not to sidetrack this discussion, but the federal mission issue. I was visiting a church where I was asked to come give some lectures and then preach on Sunday, and at a uh, fellowship meal afterwards, this young guy, about 19 years old, comes sits down right beside me. Of course, the whole, whole fellowship hall is open, and he comes sits right beside me because he wants to talk to me about this, and he says, What's your view on federal vision? And I said, okay, what is federal vision? And his response was, oh, um, yeah, well, uh, uh, yeah, that's a real good question. You know, it is really undefined. Uh, it's hard to define thing, isn't it? And I said, exactly. You come back to me with a definition of federal vision, and we'll talk about it. And then his next response was, yeah, but you don't think those guys should be ministers, do you? completely missing the point of what I'm trying to say. It's so wed into this narrow definition that no matter how we talk about it, it has to be heresy. Um, I don't operate like that. Uh, there may be heretics that use that label. There may be heretics that use the Christian Reconstruction label. I'm quite convinced there are heretics that use the Reformed label. I mean, it, it, it all comes down to definitions and what you're talking about. And if you're not willing to say that... Yeah, whether they're heretics, they're certainly... They're unbelievers. I mean, I, yeah. I, 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 one of the things I, uh, and, and I, as I've witnessed a lot of the animus and the rancor and the, and the, sl and the clamor and slander and, and hatefulness and vile, really, that was in social media. Of course, anonymity or the distance always brings out the worst in a person. You, yeah. you would never speak that way to somebody you were looking eyeball to eyeball in. But, um, I'm convinced, uh, and, and there's not much preaching on this, by the way. I've looked on Sermon Audio. I think William Perkins is probably, you mentioned him earlier, as being a mentor for many of the Westminster divines. I think he probably addressed more than any other the idea of the temporary believer. Okay. And I, I'm convinced that there's a lot of people who have got their theological precision who don't know Christ. They're not, they don't have a vital union with Christ. Well, it's always been the case, hasn't it? I mean, that's what the Pharisees were all about. You, you, you've whitewashed the tomb 
you strain it in a gnat and swallow a camel, you've got your mint and anise and cumin, you tithe on those and forget justice and mercy, um, you know, you wash the outside of the bowl but inwardly it's dirty, all that kind of stuff. Uh, uh, sure there are, it's all through the church, it's all through the church. Now, what, what we do, and this is really a criticism of the general reformed world, is because we are conservative reform guys, PCA, OPC, whatever else, uh, we have, we believe in the inspiration of Scripture. We don't compromise on that. We all down the line, we're conservative, and we we hold to the doctrines, and we contrast ourselves. We make ourselves feel good by pointing over at the liberal churches. Well, they've given up on inspiration. They've given up on creation. They've given up on all these areas, um, and we're not that. We're the good conservative traditional guys. In reality, there are just as you say. Many guys who go to seminary, they get their heads filled with knowledge. They get their head filled with this confidence that because they, they profess all of these doctrines down the line of the Westminster Confession or whatever, that they are the orthodox ones and they're right. In reality, there may not even be faith, saving faith there. Um, I, I'm convinced that's true of a lot of people. In, in not only the Reformed world, but the Reformed Baptist world and many other places. So, of course, it's always a phenomenon you have to deal with. Uh, it's very difficult to deal with, especially when you're talking about ministers, because they're entrenched in a particular power structure. Or when you're dealing with online personalities. Uh, there are a lot of online personalities that are, quite frankly, repugnant. Um, not, not even necessarily in the tone in which they argue. Um, I can handle somebody's abusive tone if they're honest in their argumentation, but they're not honest. And when they begin to entrench themselves in lies and positions that are clearly straw men of their opponents and things of that nature, you know you're, you're dealing with a sinner. Whether they have any saving faith at all is hard to prove or hard to know, but, but you know you're dealing with someone who is in sin, and quite possibly quite possibly not safe. I've told a lot of people that um, Bojadar and Stephen Perks uh, are on parallel trajectories as it pertains to ecclesiology. And I asked Bo in a recent interview where he thought the reformers uh, didn't go far enough. Where do you see the next reformation, uh, The need, whether it'll occur there or not, presumably the Lord will do what's right. Yeah. Uh, but, how would you answer that question? Uh, the next Reformation, I think, will involve ecclesiology. Now, I don't everything he—I don't know everything he said, so I can't, yay or nay it. But I think, in general, I'm more in line with him probably than some other places. I do. Uh, my church, for example, in the CREC, is a two-office church. I believe that's more biblically correct than, than the three-office model. I don't believe there's any justification for a separate institution of teaching elder. It's not. There are elders who teach, but to me that's a, a distinction of function rather than office. All elders should be able to teach. Yeah, they should. They should. And and you'll find out in our church, is, is, this is a small church, and actually we only have two elders now, but you'll find out between those two men, one of them is very highly gifted at administration, rarely preaches. Um, when he does, he preaches well, but he rarely preaches, doesn't like to preach, and doesn't do a whole lot of counseling. But as an administrator behind the scenes, he runs the smoothest ship of anybody I've ever seen. The other guy, highly gifted at personal counseling and does a lot of preaching as well. 
uh, to me, those are that's the body working, okay, and the way it's supposed to work. And I think that's what's lost in the current model. The stuff Bojnar's been critiquing lately, the, lately, the, the ministry industrial complex, what I termed a while back the evangelical industrial complex, same thing. Um, is we've and I preached on this when I was in Australia and Tasmania, and I've preached on it before. That we have this denuded view of the church, and I wrote about it in the article on Young today. We have this really constrained view of the church as the four walls on Sunday, and the elders and the sacraments, and that's the church. And that is not, that is rarely how scripture uses the term. When scripture uses the term, or refers to the, what we call the church, it's referring to the body of Christ, all believers in all places at all times. And so it is the work of the church to be involved in well well church. perks makes a lot of hay out of the fact that the word church itself is a mistranslation yeah, true that's true uh demar did some work on that a while back on the, the translations i forget what what capacity but it's true and in fact i think it was tyndale's early translations he called it the assembly right because he was translating the greek word ecclesia according to what it actually means and that term is used all the way back into the old testament to refer to the assembly of uh, the the elders. Let me ask you about American Vision. Change the topics here okay. uh, briefly. Uh, American Vision then, now, and in the future. If you'd address that, you're now president of American Vision. Uh, you were originally a researcher and a writer. Uh, I like to. Maybe you want to address that because what we want we like to do with at the end of every podcast we like to give our guests an opportunity to promote what specifically God has called them to do. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think uh, in the past, uh, American Vision has, uh, it was noted for big, I mean, slam dunk, whiz bang conventions. Mm-hmm. And uh, in recent days, not quite so much, uh, although you're still doing conventions mm-hmm. and we're looking forward to hearing some of the addresses from the recent one out in Kersville. Yeah. Uh, and in, and and as you and as you uh, maybe address what you see, you know, maybe want to give us a, a, a sort of an anthology, sort of a, a biography of, of American Vision. Uh, in the, we talked about a little earlier, the next generation. Yeah. Because obviously relays are always won or lost in the baton pass. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And we have young people today that don't know the history of Reconstruction. They didn't know. James Jordan and, and Sutton and, yeah. and all these people, they don't know even some of the baggage. And so they proudly trot out there, rush out there into the into the middle of the street with these labels and immediately get shot at. Yeah. Yeah. And so what would you say to encourage these young, new generations of people who are passionate about uh, all the things that make up Christian Reconstruction? Sure, uh, so there's two questions there. AV, past, present, future. And what do we say to the young people? Um, American Vision was founded in 1979. The, the great big conferences you're talking about really took place only in the 2000s. Uh, for a long time, it was small conferences and a lot of publications. And what Gary DeMar did over those 35 years was really provide a ton of resources. Uh, first, on, first started working in American Christian history, and when he started talking about that, people complained. Because he, he reached a much more broad general audience of evangelicals than, say, Rush Unity did, or North. 
And a lot of these people will complain, well, okay, yeah, we see that's how America was founded. We see God's law there, but we're premillennialists, right? This is all going downhill. We're waiting to be raptured out, so it's pointless to get involved in politics. So then DeMar writes uh, a book called Miss Lies and Half-Truths about getting involved in politics and all those kinds of issues. And then people complained on strictly on the eschatology. So then he was started writing on eschatology. And all the great books you know of him, Last Day's Madness and all that, came out of that kind of 19, late 1980s and beyond, really 1990s. Uh, so his ministry developed over time almost in response to some of the, the complaints of a lot of the people he's ministering to. And what he did was lay a foundation across all of those disciplines for going forward. So uh, he, he did do the vital thing of passing the baton to the next generation. Now I am kind of, I don't know if you'd consider me second or third generation reconstruction, uh, probably third, but I'm kind of in between because I did know Sutton, I do know Jordan, I've fellowshiped with those guys to some extent, but I'm not 100% in, I didn't go through what they went through. I wasn't in Tyler, I didn't fight those battles. Um, you know, I didn't fight the debate with Tommy Ice and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I'm a whole different thing. And what I'm doing is taking a lot of the principles Gary DeMar laid down and Gary North laid down and starting to apply them to the issues of our day. So out of that came the Restoring America One County at a Time. And and now the work that I'm working on on racism and, and police reform, two books I hope to have out next year. Um, racism book first. Really, really the, the Southern clergy response to uh, Southern slavery and everything that came out of that. Um, so there are a lot of issues to apply to, and I'm finding that those issues really resonate with today's generation because they do see the racism in various forms. They do see police abuses in various forms, and it's a lot more prevalent today that we see it because of the cell phone cameras. And they're asking questions. Um, why hasn't the church responded to this? When they look to the, their, their mainline churches, the ones we've just talked about, the four walls churches, the church's mission is spiritual only, stuff like that, what is the answer to this? It is either that's not the church's responsibility to be involved in those issues, or it is, yes, we should be involved in those issues, and then they go out into the secular world and baptize whatever things they're talking about. And that's the real problem, because instead of giving biblical answers to these issues, they go out and co-opt what either the liberals are saying or what the rationalist conservatives are saying. And they don't have a biblical answer. So they end up, what it, just like I said, baptizing the secular mantra. So these young people are asking for biblical answers. And like I said earlier, out of the debate that I did has come thou literally thousands of new followers most of whom are from a Baptist background, most of whom are young people or young couples, and say, we want answers to this, what are they? And so I want to stop, go back to biblical law, as Bojadar says, take the ax to the root, go to the core of the issue, and I'm doing really what I did in Restoring America. What is the biblical answer to this? How did America once have it? How did we lose it? And how do we get it back? So I'm gonna do that with the issue of racism. And in doing that, you find out that many times the liberals are right in their criticisms, in their statistics. What they're wrong in is their application of an answer.
Uh, two questions. I okay. want to interject here. Number one, do you, do you think that American Vision, and I know you, you esteem and love Gary DeMar as a colleague and brother. Yeah. Um, and uh, quite an athlete. <laughs> yeah. Uh, did American Vision stall somewhat in making an appeal or changing headings to to address the uh, neoconservative or the Tea Party uh, uh, voters? Uh, you don't have to really elaborate on it. And our uh, next question, Tenny, that is, as you survey the landscape and you get your emails and you read the responses and the testimonies of people, where do you see the most fertile ground? Yeah. Yeah. for uh, uh, reaching out and building bridges to people into to a, 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 into embracing the Christian Reconstruction? Well, that's a complex question. Uh, I, I'm not going to comment on the Navy lose its way or whatever. Uh, DeMar, like I said, laid a foundation. And I don't live in the past. I take the foundation of what he laid. I go to God and government and I see him saying things like police and fire ought to be privatized. Okay. Now, I don't know if he would elaborate and defend those today or not. He might, probably would if you asked him. But I, that's not my, I'm not living in the past. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to build a foundation and go forward. So that's my, my perspective on that. Where do I see the most fertile ground? That's the complex question because, like I said earlier, you don't always know where the fertile ground is. I, ha I, I see a lot of fertile ground in these young followers. I see a lot of fertile ground in young people. I see a lot of fertile ground in uh, the black evangelical community. I recently reached out to Brother Tuft. Yeah, uh, yeah Tut. Yeah. Tut. Yeah. Down there in Jacksonville. And I'm looking forward next time I make it down there to meet with him. Yeah, and I've had responses like that from the Bronx, from uh, when I was in Omaha, met a couple of great guys, and it's really all over. If you can ever convert the cowboy churches, you'll have a... <laughs> that too, yeah. <laughs> there, there's fertile ground everywhere, and it's like I told the story earlier of Paul and Barnabas. They go to Cyprus. They get an invitation to go speak to the highest level of government there. They didn't plan that. They never saw fertile ground there, but it was fertile ground. And I've had the same experience. I had Last fall, I preached at Kevin Swanson's, or spoke at Kevin Swanson's event up in Des Moines. Um, I was, by God's providence on the stage directly after um, oh, who was the who was the evangelical darling of the presidential candidates Baldwin? Ted, Ted Cruz oh Ted Cruz okay I was on the stage right after him and it was the largest single turnout of any one talk so there were 1900 people there when he left and I got to come up and talk to them <laughs> and he had just made some comment about Obamacare and getting rid of it and so I just riffed off that. I was like, I want to get rid of it too. Everybody's applauding, you know, yay. And I said, I want to get rid of all the socialism, yay. And that starts with the public schools. <laughs> and they're like, yay. And I was surprised that there was that much response for it. There's fertile ground there that I didn't know was there. And then I said, now I'm going to really talk about tough stuff, and that is criminal justice and police reform. If you want to hear that, come to my breakout session the next day. They had given me a room for a breakout session to hold 300 people. There were people standing around the back walls to listen to this stuff. And when I was done, I expected all kinds of pushback from these people. Didn't get any. People wanted to know more. So the fertile ground is out there, and I don't know where it's at all the time. I accept these openings that God creates. I walk into them and speak, and you find there's fertile ground places. 
Um, I've made all kinds of connections with lawyers, um, uh, some government officials. Uh, I love what Matt Truhell is doing, uh, going in and teaching the doctrine of the lesser magistrates to state senators and policemen, all kinds of officials. And you'll find out they're more often open than not, even when you're criticizing them for failing so far. Uh, God brings the fertile ground. That's and, and what's the parable, right? Is we're sowing seed out there. We don't. It's falling all all kinds of ground. Yes, it's going to fall on rocky ground and die. It's going to fall in this bad ground and be choked out by the thorns. But it's going to fall in this good ground too. And so that's how I look at it. And as I watch it, I watch these. You mentioned Tim Yarbrough. I, I, I look at these group of young people that are starting foundations of reconstruction, right? I, I see I see people contacting me in California that have been silent. It seems seems to be off the grid for 20 years, getting involved now. I see people in Illinois. They're all over the country coming out of the woodwork. Look at Reconstruction Radio. You know, when I did the debate, there was a handful of these uh, really rabid critics. And the, the mantra was, the autonomy's dead, the autonomy's dead, the autonomy's dead. And I just kept laughing because every time I heard that, I would get emails from people, look what's going on. And who would have thought, at, at even just five years ago, that if we started a network or a forum podcast, you'd have six or eight podcasts or however many you go with people that have deep wisdom contributing to the cause that's being downloaded by thousands of people. Listening. Well, you need to keep dying because the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, <laughs> yeah, well, right? <laughs> yeah. There, there's always a blessing in there that you can't see. So I, I'm up for anything. So I think we're, we we believe that, that, that American Vision's best days are ahead. And, and absolutely. And when we do... You know, we do these tremendous sales once or twice a year. One of the greatest books that sells is David Chilton's Paradise Restored, which is this broad biblical theology post-millennial vision. That book sells like nothing. It sells like hotcakes. I mean, we'll sell 50 to 100 copies of everything else. We'll sell two or 300 copies of that. Interesting. And a lot of that is going to the charismatic world. Okay. They've got a lot of twisted up theology, beliefs, positive confession, and all that stuff. A lot there's some heresy out there, but there is a group among the body of believers in those circles. They have this optimism, and they want biblical substance behind it. And they're buying these books and reading them, and they're converting. And people are coming to me. What do you have more on this? Uh, do you have a curriculum on this? Do you have something I can use for Sunday school? Um, it's just the demand is out there. And God creates that demand. And, it's, and the charismatic circles is, is one big area where there's a lot of problems. Well, you know, one of the most common questions that I see in social media among Reconstructionists is where do we find a good local assembly? Uh, because I'm a Perks fan. I don't use the word church <laughs> yeah. but sparingly and in quotes. Uh, but Paul Michael Raymond, in response to the question, I asked him how do we uh, penetrate... Uh, apathetic and pietistic and antinomian congregations he said you don't you plant new ones yeah. uh let the dead bury the dead essentially and and uh so that i think that is really the 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 question i think the house church the home fellowship movement yes. is 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 the future i think uh, you you appeared with jeff durbin uh you you came out you accepted their invitation to come out there to the end abortion now yeah uh, event wonderful event yeah, and uh, of course, uh, I really appreciated. Now, again, I'm not asking you to take sides because we love Jeff, and he's a dear brother. 
I, I really appreciate what Ra- Randy Thomas, Rusty Thomas said because he, he gave, gave props to Russell Hunter. And, you know, recently you may be following that, that uh, now there's three states. Now, none of them have actually capitulated. But in, in Oklahoma, Texas, they've got uh, abolition added to the Republican plank for whatever that's worth. Uh, they got close within 11% of the vote, or 11 votes in Oklahoma. Yeah. They've got an, a, a measure right now in, in Ohio, which is a really a bellwether state by anybody's True. estimation. True. And, and this is something that hasn't been done. You know, That's more than the, the entire pro-life movement has done in 44 years. Yeah, I think the, the establishment pro-life movement, especially at the national level, is just... It's ineffective, might even say corrupt. Um, it, it is just like you mentioned with the establishment churches. You just got to replace it. Just forget what it's doing. And you'll find in, in most of these cases where these abolitionist guys are making headway in the state assemblies, the, the guys most actively opposing them are not the liberals. It's the national right to life guys. Yeah. Um, I think that's a tragedy. E- even if we end up losing, it's still a tragedy. Why would you not stand up and put your name behind this? Um but, yeah, the whole AHA thing, again, it's like everything we've talked about so far, it has become a label that has baggage with it. Within that movement, there are guys I would stand beside and fight for and support 100% and still do. Within that label, there are a few bad apples here and there that are causing problems that, that uh, you know, maybe, maybe Marcus Pittman is correct. It's probably tied to their ecclesiology. That doesn't characterize the movement, in my opinion, and and God's going to use it. I don't care what you say; God's going to use it, and get out of the way. Yes, the bad apples are there, but the bad apples are in the Baptist churches. The bad apples are in the Presbyterian uh, assemblies and uh, sessions and presbyteries. They're they're all over the place, and the bad apples are in the national right to life. Um, if you if you wait around, and this is one area I agree with them are. Uh, if you wait around until your organization has no bad apples in it and it's perfect, you'll never get anything done. Um, uh, and they, they always dealt with this in Scripture. There was always some element in there that was causing dissent or something of that nature. What you do is you learn to work through the difficulties, and if necessary, you separate, go separate ways. You go to do your thing, I'll do my thing. You see that exactly. It's coming up in the next se- uh, segment of my series on Acts. Paul and Barnabas have just got done with this miraculous tour they come back they want to go on another trip and they bring John Mark with them well John Mark had left just before they went to Cyprus he didn't want to be involved in all this other stuff so he went back to Jerusalem I believe probably a girl (laughs) Uh, we might have been who knows it might have been a woman back there Uh, when they start the second tour John Mark wants to rejoin them and a fight breaks out between Barnabas and Paul over whether they let John Mark come or not. And it says that the, the argument got fierce. Now imagine this, two guys who have just been involved in the most miraculous outpourings of grace and conversions together, almost like brothers, brothers in the faith, of course, um, almost like blood brothers, witnessing God's power, and the next day, because of one other mutual association, they're at each other's throats. And it almost, uh, almost fall out. Well, and, you know, I had a recent experience, something like that. We all do, and that's what my point is. And finally, they decide, all right, Barnabas, you take John Mark and go do your ministry. Paul will take his guys and go do his ministry. And sometimes you got to do that. And I think AHA is in a situation like that. Let the good guys go do what the good guys are doing. If there are bad apples, deal with them as individuals. Don't tarnish the whole movement. And 
then go forward because there's a work being done here that if you neglect it, God's not going to bless any of it. Well, you know, it's interesting that it, it, you know, boiling down the, the definition of what it means to be a Christian reconstructionist to Rush Denny's uh, uh, definition that it's a doer. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. You know, we've had some, we've had some, a lot of, I would say, a lot of uh, the abolitionists have proven to be uh, a real true yeah. blue reconstructionist. And in fact, uh, because we have uh, accepted them and embraced them as such, they've actually begun to really investigate some of the more um, theologically uh, um, specific yeah. uh, tenets of reconstructionists. And it's actually proved to be a blessing to them sure. and they've now begun to identify themselves as reconstructionists. Of course that means they're doubly labeled. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> how big how big of an umbrella do we have, um, uh, Joel? I mean, you know, we've got Covenanters, we've got two kingdoms. I mean, let's face it, Todd Field does some good work, but a lot of stuff I can't buy. Yeah. No, I, uh, again, we, we've got the, the Federal Vision people. Do we, we're, we're, I look what, at all what is the guys. French? Brothers? I mean, there's a whole movement of just street preachers out there. Uh, that some of them are Christian Reconstructionists, some of them are conscious theonomists, and some of them are consciously haters of theonomy. Um, do I side with one group and not the other? No. Go out there on the street and preach your gospel. Because ultimately you're going to bring people into the kingdom, and the Holy Spirit will decide how he places them in the kingdom. They may be Reconstructionists, maybe not. I, don't, I would definitely argue with those guys if they wanted to have the discussion. But I'm not going to condemn them as not. I even I'm even thankful for John MacArthur. Will it still despite, be despite despite massive disagreements and I think some massive uh, waste of money. Will there still country. be de- will there still be denominations in the golden age? Well, I don't know what the golden <laughs> age is. You got to define that. Well, right? I, that, that, well, we have to go by uh, touche. <laughs> yeah, because uh, I'm you know. Um, it's like the old hymn when comes around the age of gold, right? The Christmas hymn. Well, but. Uh, yeah, I'm, if, I, if we're looking at that from a post-millennial perspective, um, if you just look at it generally down the road further when when God's kingdom has developed further in the world, I think at some point you're going to see the erosion of formal denominations. But as I said even in my sermon yesterday, God's got these denominations out here for a reason. So when Paul says there must be divisions among you, do you see that as a positive, or is he being sarcastic? I think it's both. I think it's both. He, he's criticizing the guys who say, "I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, or I'm of Oh, I'm of Christ." Right? Um, uh, it's and that's just like the the fundamentalists today. I've got no creed but the Bible. <laughs> Come on, that's that's a creed. So right? Um, yes, uh, there there will be divisions among us. And I think loosely, for the most part, we recognize that we're part of the body of Christ. There are people out there, especially like you said earlier on social media, it magnifies the, the, the evil. It's kind of a megaphone for people's prejudices. Uh, there are people there who will say, oh, well, you're not a Christian if you believe that. Um, I don't believe that a lot of the people that actually say that really believe it. Um, people that have criticized me most harshly, I look at as Christian men who are being used by God in some capacity. And now you haven't been called a heretic, right? Oh, I've been called everything in the book. <laughs> yeah, no, I've been called a heretic, among other things, child of the devil. Uh, really? But I can say, even before that old debate, I wrote it's somewhere on in, on my on the site. I wrote that my goal in this is I know that there are going to be people who ridicule me, 
through people who lie about me. I know, I know going into this, lies will be told and slanders will be spread across the internet. I don't care. I don't, I'm not worried about, to me that's water off the duck's back. I'm not even a very good duck, but it's water off the duck's back. And yet, the people who get converted, who have the seed planted, who care, who have any intelligence and integrity, whom the Holy Spirit has gifted with this, it really is a divine gift to say, I'm going to be intellectually honest no matter how much it ends up, you know, quote unquote, hurting me in my current position. Those people, they'll figure it out eventually. And they do. Through all the unpleasantness that I have experienced over the past few years of people, some of whom have called me heretics, other people who've called me out for allegedly lying about people. Um, some people just said you're an angry theonomist. Uh, I know. And that's a mild thing, you know. I've You cannot imagine the number of people who have said that and then come back to me two weeks later on Facebook and said, Dr. McDermott, I'm sorry, I was wrong. And they may say... I, still, I did that on slavery. Yeah, that's true. We had a discussion on that. They may say, I still don't agree with you on theonomy, but I shouldn't have treated you the way I did. And I've had a good number of them come back and say, you know what, I was wrong, and I believe you're right on theonomy. What do I read next? And those interactions are the ones that I live and breathe for. The rest of the stuff, I, God has given me a grace to be immune to the people who ridicule me. I mean, it, it, and it really is grace. Well, it's, it's Peter saying, look at Christ who was reviled, and he reviled not again. No, I'm not talking about great and pious I am. But I have got the grace to be able to just ignore those folks and do my thing and walk through the little open doors God provides me. And oftentimes, when you get through that door, there's a tremendous audience that wants, that's begging you to teach them. Well, so, I, I really appreciate you. I mean, warts and all. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's amazing to consider the life of a man and the destiny that God had upon your life when you were growing up in Fort Smith, Arkansas and playing rock and roll music. Yeah, a little bit. Nobody, you would have never imagined what God had called you to do. And that's and it's a blessing to call you friend yeah. and brother. And uh, we'll hear more from you, I hope. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, may your tribe increase. And, and hopefully we have a, uh, a whole a whole brood of of, of covenant keepers and kingdom builders that you're yeah. discipling right here yeah. under your under the the McDermott roof. Absolutely, and that's that's the hope. Yeah, is our children. Yep, yep. And these networks we've built. Um, a lot of the people you've interviewed on the War Room, Paul Dor, Jerry Lynn Ward, all of these people who may not have a ministry and a face out there, but are doing a phenomenal work. I'm privileged to be networked with all these people because I constantly feed on their passion and you know what when when their passion runs into a brick wall they'll call me and say I just need some guidance on this I'll talk with them for five minutes and they're like you just lit the fire I'm, I'm ready to go again and it's it's a really a great community that we have and it's a, just a privilege to be involved in the work that God is doing in, in whatever capacity we're doing it Amen and, and, and I always thank the Holy Spirit for making true fellowship even possible. So Joel McDermott, Dr. Joel McDermott, uh, from the McDermott uh, House 
we we appreciate y'all for joining us for this evening with Joel, and thank you for uh, supporting us with your prayers because we need prayer. Absolutely, prayer is the lubricant that makes the kingdom of God move. And thank you for joining us on the War Room. Thank you for joining us in the War Room. Please enjoy the nation's rage, Psalm two, by my soul among lions. Why do the nations rage?